This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I met with the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, Janet Austin, and she has granted my request to dissolve the Legislative Assembly. The campaign begins. How NDP leader John Horgan defends his move to hold an early election and the reaction. A Vancouver councillor accused of conflict of interest. Why bar owner Michael Weeb is being asked to step down. And celebrating 60 years of television news. There's one man here I must doctor. The early days of Global BC from the pioneers who first put it on the air. Now you know TV. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. Well, get ready to head to the polls. Election Day is Saturday, October 24th. And every aspect of the campaign will be impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's bring in Richard Zussman right now from Victoria. Richard, John Horgan visited the lieutenant governor this morning. Janet Austin agreed to dissolve parliament. How does he justify the timing? Yeah, it's all about going to the polls now. October 24th, Chris, is when we'll be off in the campaign, starting with a broken promise. In essence, the NDP ripping up the deal they signed with the Greens. They said they weren't going to call an early election. They have. And now we're off to a campaign that's going to be unlike any other we've ever seen in this province. Fumbling to take a COVID-friendly election picture. Just one sign this campaign is going to be a lot different than any we've ever seen before. Yeah, how about an elbow? We'll give you an elbow. Yeah. NDP leader John Horgan kicking off his re-election bid. I want everyone to know that I've struggled mightily with this decision and it did not come easy to me. Horgan launching the campaign in a Langford neighbourhood, his home after asking Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin to dissolve Parliament Monday morning and triggering an October 24th election. The early election call breaking a central part of the deal with the Greens that explicitly said the NDP wouldn't call an early election. I believe that what we did in the past was one thing. What we need to do in the future is quite another matter. And the best way forward is to ask the people of British Columbia where they want to go and who they want to lead them. The ongoing pandemic will overshadow the entirety of the election. Horgan says he needs the support of British Columbians in order to manage the response moving forward. We can either delay that decision and create uncertainty and instability over the next 12 months, more speculation, more talk about what might be, or we can do what I believe is always the right thing and ask British Columbians what they think. I'm excited now to introduce you to an, our team of candidates Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson kicking off the campaign in Vancouver, with Liberal candidates appearing by Zoom to express their support. Today, John Horgan chose politics over people. And on the issue of government stability, Green Party leader Sonia Furstenau says she told Horgan on Friday the NDP had the Greens' full support until October 2021, the date that was supposed to be the next election. This is not a time when we put the interests of a political party ahead of the British Columbians who need to know that we are here to serve them. 
Recent polls are pointing to Horgan winning a majority, meaning winning 44 seats or more. The NDP won 41 seats in 2017, the Liberals 43 and the Greens 3. Horgan hoping to get back into this office he left Monday morning. Voters aren't so sure the campaign was the right call. I think it's way too soon. I don't think anybody's ready. And just to call election, it's a strong power grab. I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to vote, but it may change my, uh, my vote as a result of this. One sign the election is very different this time around. Usually on the night of an election call, you would have a giant rally that we'd be at for the party leaders. That's not happening. We don't expect to see any major campaign rallies. Door knocking will look different, but ultimately it will be up to the voter to decide, Chris and Sophie, whether they are okay with a pandemic election and want Premier John Horgan to continue running this place. Back to you guys. Lacks the energy it once did. Okay, thanks very much, Richard. Appreciate it. Now we'll go to the COVID-19 numbers for BC, which include three counting periods from Friday afternoon to Monday morning. We have 366 confirmed new infections, bringing our total to 8,208 for the province. Tragically, four more people have died. We have now lost 227 people in B.C. to complications from the virus. 60 people are in hospital, 21 patients in ICU. 5,972 people are considered fully recovered. And that leaves us with 1,987 active cases and more than 3,200 people in isolation. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on today's COVID-19 cases. Keith, the trend obviously is not reassuring. Mm -hmm. Some would say it's a bold move to hold an election during a pandemic. But John Horgan seems very comfortable with the decision. Yeah, he seemed quite confident at that news conference this morning, uh, Chris. Now, he has consulted with people, his closest advisors, such as uh, Chief of Staff Jeff May, Special Advisor Bob Dewar. Uh, Bob Dewar, a critical member of his team in the 2017 campaign. Those are the ones giving him advice, and they do think this is a course uh, to take uh, to a majority government. One person he didn't, do didn't talk to, nor should he have, was a, a provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who talked about that today at her briefing, that uh, her job is not to advise the Premier when it comes to elections. Premier Horgan did not ask for my advice uh, around calling an election, and, and nor would I expect him to. Um, my role is uh, to provide advice on the health of the population and to um, put in measures that are needed to ensure that activities that need to happen can happen in our community. And, and that is what I will continue to focus on. Now, as we go through this campaign, we'll continue to hear from Dr. Bonnie Henry at these regular twice-weekly briefings. Health Minister Adrian Dix will not be there. He's a candidate now. He won't be serving in that role as a minister. And one final note on the numbers, Chris, we're at a daily average of 120, which is pretty high. But I just checked the positivity rate. Again, we took more than 18,000 tests over that three-day period. We're still at 2% overall in the province. That's still a good number. All right. Keith, thank you very much. Well, as we've mentioned, going to the polls will be very different during the global pandemic. Other jurisdictions have done it, and Elections BC says it's ready too. Ted Chernecki has a look at the extra protocols in place for in-person voting and how British Columbians can mail it in if going to a polling station is not an option for you. At the risk of stating the obvious, like everything these days, this election will be unlike any other. But I do believe it can be conducted safely. There won't be the big rallies, wow. the glad handing, and certainly no baby kissing. 
But elections are happening even with a pandemic. New Brunswick just concluded an election with 66% turnout, which is relatively high. Saskatchewan will be underway in a few, a few short days. And then there's South Korea, arguably one of the most pandemic-ready countries in the world. 50 million people voted during this pandemic with no serious escalation of infections. In B.C., school auditoriums could be again used to vote, and that isn't sitting well with the BCTF. Just in the context of the pandemic uh, and the struggles we're already having to ensure that schools are regularly cleaned up up to the standards and the health and safety guidelines, uh, we have just some concerns. This will put additional pressure on schools that just isn't necessary right now. Elections B.C. says there'll be the usual social distancing and hygiene protocols with staff wearing masks and shields. Voters aren't required to wear a mask, but if they do, they won't have to remove it. They can even bring their own pencil or pen. There'll be seven instead of six advanced polling days from October 15th to the 21st, and those wanting to vote by mail must apply for a ballot. This time, there could be more than 30% wanting to vote by mail instead of the usual 1%. So come election night, it's unclear if we'll actually know who won or if they'll still be counting mail-in ballots for days afterwards. Ted Shinohi, Global News. Now, Vancouver City Councilors resisting calls for his resignation over conflict of interest. An independent investigation found Councilor Michael Weeb, who owns a bar, was in conflict when he voted on the city's temporary patio program. As Grace Key reports, a former Vancouver Councilor believes there's no doubt Weeb made a big mistake. An independent report finds Vancouver City Councillor Michael Weeb was in a conflict of interest when he voted in favour of temporary restaurant patios, saying he has a financial interest as owner of Eight and a Half Restaurant and investor in Portside Pub. It recommends he be disqualified from holding office. The report notes, Weeb put forward an amendment for staff to work with restaurants on patio options, finding his proposed and passed amendment enabled Councillor Weeb to wear two hats, that of the council member and that of the business owner. This was a clear conflict of interest situation that he deliberately set in motion. This conflict of interest cannot be viewed as an inadvertent action. A statement from Councillor Weeb reads, in advance of the votes, I asked for advice from city management and my understanding was that the patio policy would be broad and citywide and that the policy doesn't specifically benefit me over other operators. Back in June, former city councillor George Affleck brought up the conflict of interest issue. The general rule uh, by staff and by the legal team at staff is that if you feel at all uncomfortable or if you feel that there will be any kind of perception of bias or conflict, that it's smarter to recuse yourself, to not be part of that process. Eight and a Half Restaurant was one of the first businesses to apply for a temporary patio, and we was involved in the application through emails. The report states, from this timeline and the email string, it is clear that Councillor Weeb's actions during the city meetings were made with the knowledge that he was personally involved in facilitating his restaurant. A court application can be made to remove Weeb from office. It needs 10 or more electors or two-thirds of Council approval. Mayor Kennedy Stewart is reviewing the report. Weeb is not stepping down, saying he wants to provide further evidence. Grace Key, Global News. A group aiming to pressure the Trudeau government to scrap the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion is taking action once again today. Ramina Dea is live at another rail blockade set up by the group Extinction Rebellion. Ramina, what point are the protesters trying to make? 
Chris, they're saying that climate change is an emergency right now, and the proof for the everyday person is the smoky skies that we've seen the past few days from the fires down south. The group is here. As you mentioned, they're trying to pressure the Trudeau government to stop the TMX expansion, uh, which is pegged at around $16 billion right now and counting. The protesters are blocking the rail line, not the road at Renfrew and Grandview. They laid a fake coffin in the middle of the tracks. More than 30 people are here. It's a peaceful demonstration. The protesters say that fossil fuels are killing the environment. We need to stop TMX. It's not making any sense of any kind, not financial sense and not moral sense. It was 49.4 degrees in Los Angeles on September the 6th. We've been choking on smoke. Why are we doing this? Now, more than a dozen police officers that I can see at least are here with the Vancouver police. There is also police with CN Rail. Now, the VPD says that they're just here to keep the peace and that the tracks are actually CN police jurisdiction. I tried to talk to some of these officers to find out what their next move is going to be, given that this action is illegal. And they were saying that we're going to have to talk to public affairs. Back to you. All right, we'll wait through the evening and see what develops. Thanks very much. Romina Dea reporting live for us tonight. Gunfire erupts in what looks like another gangland turf war and concealing identity while conducting its own investigation into organized crime at BC casinos. How BCLC made promises to the key players it never should have made in just over a minute. The top women in the running for the position of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Coming up a little later on the news hour. And a miracle in a collapsed building in India. That's coming up later as well. Right now, though, an expert in organized crime intelligence says the latest incident of deadly gang violence in Metro Vancouver has international connections. As Sarah McDonald reports, he says the shooting in Richmond of two men alleged to have been involved in high-level money laundering is likely being watched around the world. As if the health risks of a pandemic weren't enough. Innocent civilians in this province are now facing the resurgence of gunfire erupting in public places right across the Lower Mainland. It's not only gang violence that's increasing right now. This is the most alarming uh, that we've seen in a while, but all crime is up. And the death toll is climbing as known criminals target each other with no regard for public safety. The past week alone, seeing at least half a dozen shootings from Abbotsford to Langley to Surrey, two of them fatal. Are there allegations that individuals are engaged in, uh, in the gangland uh, lifestyle? You can very easily uh, end up dead. That's what happened in Richmond last Friday. In a targeted hit, experts say was far more significant and sophisticated than, say, this one in South Vancouver just two days prior, killing a 23-year-old man with local gang ties. I hear this. The targets fired at inside this Richmond restaurant, alleged transnational gangster Paul King Jin and an associate. Both men, once pinpointed by the RCMP in a sweeping money laundering probe, Jin surviving Friday's shooting, but his co-accused, Jean Zhu was killed. The incident itself may look like um, kind of the lower end gang uh, violence. There's definitely um, a little bit more 
information that needs to be uh, brought about. A civil forfeiture claim filed by the province last month names Jin as the manager of this Richmond gym on property assessed at close to $8 million. Purchase the province alleges through proceeds of crime. Jin denies all wrongdoing and the allegations against him have never been proven in court with charges state. But experts say Friday's hit is no doubt on the international radar. It's very significant to see the Five Eyes community identifying uh, things that are happening here in, uh, in Vancouver. As the question for local investigators remains who pulled the trigger and why. In this case, the scope and scale of the investigation clearly goes far beyond just street level. Sarah McDonald, Global News. As the Cullen Commission into Money Laundering in B.C. Casinos prepares to get back underway, the commissioner has fired a legal broadside at the B.C. Lottery Corporation. At issue, interviews of casino patrons gathered by BCLC investigators and the corporation's request to keep those identities of those participants secret. John Wall reports. In less than a month, key witnesses and evidence presented at B.C.'s public inquiry into money laundering is expected to expose the truth about how this province became a laundromat for criminal cash. But in the lead-up, it was the BC Lottery Corporation fighting to keep interview notes from high-stake gamblers, their associates and casino staff under wraps. This was a broad, sweeping application just to keep everything not only away from the public, but just outside of proper scrutiny. A recent application for a confidentiality order applies to intelligence material ordered to be handed over to the Cullen Commission, including correspondence, notes, interviews, or other records of meetings with players relating to money laundering and or relevant gaming integrity issues. BCLC said it would hand over the material if the commission treated it as strictly confidential, keeping it from the eyes of the public, other witnesses, even other participants, except for Robert Croker and James Lightbody, a former and current BCLC executive, both with participants standing. And that really does fly in the face of the, of the spirit of the Cullen Commission. The Lottery Corporation argued people it interviewed should be given informer privilege and made assurances to those interviewees that information obtained in the course of the interviews will not be shared outside of BCLC. The Lottery Corporation has an obligation to be fully transparent with GPEB. And with all regulators, including FinTrack. Commissioner Austin Cullen ultimately ruled against BCLC's request, stating BCLC does not have the same informer privilege as a policing agency. And the province made to interviewees to not share their information with anyone else is an assurance in conflict with BCLC's obligations to GPEB under the Gaming Control Act and to FinTrack. Commissioner Cullen is sending the message that this is serious business and he is going to... He's not going to take no for an answer, and he is going to get to the bottom of this. In a statement, BCLC writes, it made the confidentiality application solely out of our concern for the safety of certain individuals. BCLC is pleased that the commissioner ruled to limit access to personal identifying information. But Cullen also ordered BCLC to provide an unredacted version of the material, which will be provided to the commission and gaming policy and enforcement branch. John Hua, Global News. Up ahead, Squire takes a deep dive into the Global BC archives. Many, many times we got stuff that nobody else got. As we approach our 60th anniversary, we chase down the people who set the station up for success.
And scientists believe they've solved the mystery of what killed over 300 elephants in Botswana. Emergency crews are on scene to a crash involving a motorcycle here in West Vancouver, eastbound on the upper levels highway at Westmount. The Westmount exit is blocked and traffic is down to just a single lane. From home to car insurance, BCAA's local experts are here for all your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, hive of a motorcycle crash in West Vancouver. a good indicator tonight. We kick off six weeks of special programming leading up to Global BC's 60th anniversary on October 31st. You'll see stories from behind the scenes and groundbreaking journalism from the past six decades. Tonight our coverage begins with how the news hour became the dominant newscast in BC and has never lost that distinction. We meet the visionaries who changed the way local news is delivered. Squire Barnes shows us how it set the standard for Supper Hour News. This is Global News Hour at 6. This is the story of our show, The News Hour. The number one newscast, many times the number one TV show in BC, and it has been for five decades. But when it was first conceived by station president Ray Peters in 1968, most broadcasters thought the idea of a local 6 o'clock news show was a waste of money. Everybody, uh, advertisers, uh, uh, CTV affiliates were saying, you're crazy spending all that money on news. And it wasn't until we were delivering 600,000 homes that they suddenly realized what it was we were trying to do. The beginnings, of course, were humble. The first ever news hour was mostly about the Vancouver Sun Salmon Derby. Catch and fish! Yeah, we just have bites! Within a few years of talking about small fish, the news hour began to go after big fish, like politicians. It was around the third year when we started pushing them around, seriously. And then we went after the opinion leaders. And that's, I think, what put it over the top. You know, politicians live in bubble worlds. They, I mean, let's face it, they just do. It's not a real world. So we would bring some reality to their doorstep. Wouldn't it be normal for the public affairs department to approve? I think the news hour was built on holding people accountable. During the, the 70s, 80s, 90s, there were so many scandals. I mean, cabinet ministers were falling, it seemed, every month. Many of them were brought down by the news hour, were exposed by the news hour. Under the leadership of Cameron Bell and Keith Bradbury, news hour staff had certain rules. When we were doing it, we kind of went for the controversy. So we, uh, we, we would come at this thing with uh, just a little critical, skeptical eye. There's one man here I must talk to. Bell, Cameron Bell. All been taught never to take no for an answer. That's true, never take no. We were instructed if we went to the scene of the story 
we had to be the last people to leave that scene. You know, we could not let anyone stay longer than us because maybe they would get something that we wouldn't get. And I'll tell you, many, many times we got stuff that nobody else got because we stayed at the scene and kept talking to people and kept recording stuff. And, and I also think that the, the viewers and people who were victims were viewers too and families of victims, they knew that. They knew we were committed to it. That was the thing you should have done, and we did. You had to be on their side. You were their voice. You were there to ask their questions. And if you, if you fell short, then you weren't doing what you were supposed to be doing. And unlike most TV newscasts, they saw newspapers as the main competitor. The founding principle was you read the newspaper to decide what you're not going to cover. They were always determined to set their own agenda. Look, I mean, one of the things you learn from the history of journalism is that no, no publisher ever tried to sell yesterday's news. It, there's no market for it. We followed stories that nobody else followed. We went to talk to people that nobody else would talk to, and so on and so forth. We just, we, we just went out, we were like vigilantes in a way. We just went out and got it. And for the man who conceived the news hour, nobody was allowed to stop the momentum that made it number one. A lot of people wanted to change it, and I wouldn't let them. And I made sure that the money was in place to support what they were doing. And my role was to make sure that I defended what it was that they were doing because I believed in it. And that brings back some I had, to, I had to throw in that old promo. I think it's from the 80s. Classic. And Ray Peters is as feisty today as he was back then when he got everything started. And it, what a change. They were going against Walter Cronkite back then when they first went on the well, air. That was the number That was one the story. odd thing. The number one newscast in this city back in the late 60s was out of New York, and it had nothing to do with B.C. or Canada. So that was the idea Ray had. If we do a one-hour local show and, and you know, go with local news, we will have an audience. And mm -hmm. he was right. And the people he brought in to build that station, build this station, I should say, and build this show, uh, we stand on the shoulders of giants, basically. We sure do. It's a winning philosophy from back then. and continues to be so today. Squire, thanks a lot. I know more great stories coming up as we celebrate this 60th anniversary. And tomorrow, we'll look at the big news story of the 60s. And let's just say the times they were changing. And Vancouver was right in the thick of the hippie movement and the summer of love. Look forward to that one uh, coming up on the news hour. And still ahead for us tonight, a big boost for BC Bud, even if it's just on paper. They haven't had any support from any le level of government. Can new rules do for craft cannabis what legislation has already done for microbreweries? And the women most likely to succeed, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Supreme Court. Global BC 60th Anniversary in partnership with Connect Hearing, the number one physician referred hearing provider. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Traffic is steady in both directions over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge, but keep in mind that not too far away past the south end of the bridge deck is a crash eastbound on 72nd at 116th with emergency crews on scene. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside Walmarts and the real Canadian superstores throughout BC. For hours and locations, visit sussexinsurance.com. Open every day. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Rescue crews have pulled survivors from the rubble of a collapsed building in India. The three-story residential building crumbled to the ground early this morning while many people slept. At least 10 people have been killed. More than two dozen others are still unaccounted for. Quick warning about our next story. Some of the images are disturbing. Scientists seem to have solved the mysterious deaths of hundreds of elephants earlier this year in Botswana. More than 300 elephants have died there. The government now blames a toxic algae bloom in the elephants' watering holes. Cyanobacteria can produce deadly toxins, but scientists say toxic bacteria are occurring more frequently as climate change drives up global temperatures. Some conservationists say there's still not enough evidence to rule out poaching as the cause of at least some of the deaths and say more research should be done because other animals using the same watering holes were not affected. A political bombshell has hit Washington, D.C. following the death of liberal Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Both Democrats and Republicans are locked in a fierce battle over when that vacancy should be filled. And as Global's Reggie Cicchini explains, a Republican victory could tilt decisions for a generation. Only hours after the death of Justice Ginsburg was announced, mourning was met with political will in a fierce clash between Republicans and Democrats. President Trump, who ran on a platform of appointing right-leaning judges, has pledged to act with speed. We're going to fill the seat. A typical appointment takes roughly 70 days. There's six weeks until the next election, and while legal scholars say that would be unprecedented, they note Republicans ultimately have control. There's a constitutional clause that gives them power to set the rules of their own proceedings. So they have enormous power to do with this nomination what they will. Leading Trump's list, two conservative women, ideological opposites to Justice Ginsburg, prompting fears that landmark rulings and even an election challenge could be jeopardized. It will only politicize the court more if they intervene. Republicans are now in a battle to save face, justifying Trump's decision to fill a vacancy 43 days before an election after denying Barack Obama the same right nine months before the 2016 election. They set their own precedent just four years ago when they made it very clear the people choose the president, the president chooses the nominee. In her dying days, Ginsburg family said she hoped her seat would stay vacant through the election. But on Monday morning, her most fervent wish was trampled on by a presidential conspiracy theory. I don't know that she said that or was that written out by Adam it Schiff and Schumer and Pelosi. I, I would be more inclined to the second. OK, you know, that came out of the wind. It sounds so beautiful. Justice Ginsburg will lie in repose at the U.S. Supreme Court starting on Wednesday and at the U.S. Capitol building on Friday for both public and private memorials before being interred at Arlington National Cemetery. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington. And in a surprise move, the U.S. Department of Justice has labeled New York City, Portland and Seattle 
anarchist jurisdictions in a move to withdraw federal funding from the three cities. That label follows a directive from President Trump to review federal funding to state and local governments where violence or vandalism has taken place during protests. Back at home now, Global News has obtained surveillance video of the suspect in a high-end whiskey heist at a Richmond liquor store. The suspect, a white man wearing a mask, camo shorts, and a blue Under Armour hat, walked into the Brighouse BC liquor store on June 27th. He scoped the aisles before police say he smashed a display case containing two bottles of Delmore Constellation, a 1966 and 1969. The suspect then ran out of the store with the spirits worth $80,000. As staff chased him, he fled in a black pickup truck. If you know who he is, contact police. Craft cannabis growers in B.C. will soon be able to deliver directly to stores and sell from their production sites. While a central interior First Nation is already ahead of the farm gate sales game, other producers and retailers say Ottawa is blocking growth. Here's Aaron MacArthur. This is what the future of cannabis in B.C. could look like. Kyle Nielsen currently grows on his Peachland property under a medicinal license. Ideally, his personal production could be turned into a craft commercial operation. Yeah, if I was licensed on the property, be able to hire probably close to half a dozen people, including myself, and be able to uh, make a career of it. The B.C. government has made craft and micro-growing a focus of the cannabis industry in B.C., announcing farm gate sales and direct-to-retail distribution. The catch, according to B.C. cannabis groups, is Health Canada. To date, only 18 producers have been granted approval. It's a tiny fraction of all the cannabis legally sold in stores. We have literally thousands of B.C. micro-growers right now that are willing to transition but they haven't had any support from any level of government. The Farmgate sales model is going ahead in Williams Lake. The Williams Lake First Nation just signing an agreement with the provincial government to produce and sell cannabis with up to eight retail outlets. The production will be up and running for direct sales to consumers a full year faster than the government's 2022 timeline. It made sense to us in a small market like Williams Lake to do it this way. There's a tourism component that we are going to be able to focus on. A recent study by the Craft Cannabis Co-op outlines the benefits of small-scale production. More choice for consumers, more jobs and opportunity for the sector, and increased tax revenue to government. But with these opportunities still years away in British Columbia, the end result, a thriving black market. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Still ahead, long live TikTok. The deal that keeps content creators happy by avoiding a U.S. shutdown, at least for now. And in sports, Quinn Hughes convinced Canucks fans he's the best rookie in the league, but he didn't convince everyone. That's later. Plastics turned paradise into piles of garbage, who Honduras blames for the beach blight. Coming up right after Christie's forecast, yes, Sweater weather officially arrives tomorrow, although you couldn't really tell earlier, Christy, it seemed really sunny where you were. 
Oh, it was a pretty nice finish to what was a tough week, I have to say. And here we are, the last full day of summer, and we saw a little bit of sunshine, which was nice. But you'll note, I have my umbrella above me. We did just have a passing shower, and we still do have a few showers in the forecast overnight. We officially transition into fall tomorrow morning. Here's a quick look at what's on deck. As Chris said, yes, it is going to be fall-like weather. Pull out those sweaters, everyone. So a uh, fall-like pattern is certainly about to hit us. We aren't going to see a soaker tomorrow by any means. A few showers possible overnight and through the morning hours. Likely in the morning, it'll be along the mountains and out through the Fraser Valley. I'm actually even thinking some breaks of sunshine through the late morning, sort of noonish hours tomorrow. But quickly, the cloud cover will push on shore. And yes, we've got quite a doozy to start off the fall season. Northern Vancouver Island will feel the effects of it late tomorrow. And for Southern Vancouver Island, Metro Vancouver, we'll start to see that rainfall overnight tomorrow. So your Wednesday morning commute tomorrow, or sorry, Wednesday morning commute will be a tough one with wet, windy conditions. And here's a look at how much uh, rainfall we could see just in the next uh, 24 hours. So by the end of the day tomorrow, not a lot. Again, it's overnight Tuesday into Wednesday. Wednesday that we're really going to see this wet weather push in. North coast, central coast, late tomorrow you'll see the rainfall and interior regions will see it as showers on Wednesday as well. So really affecting the entire province as we kick off the first full day of fall. This is your Tuesday forecast as we transition into fall early in the morning. Not a bad conditions expected in through the interior regions, but for our area, mainly cloudy, some breaks of blue sky with rainfall by tomorrow night. And we are going to be in for wet cooler weather for the next little while. Tough to handle, I have to tell you that. All right, here's your central windows weather window looking out over Prince George. A great shot by David Greenberg. Thanks so much. Nice to see some blue sky there as well and a little bit of sunshine over the park. For sure. Okay, thanks very much, Christy. All right, back to that shocking video out of Honduras that hammers home the crisis of ocean pollution. A giant wave of trash is washed up on the beaches of Omoa in the northern part of the country, leaving nightmarish scenes of tropical beaches covered with piles of garbage. The Honduran government is blaming neighboring Guatemala and has sent an official complaint asking it to take immediate steps to halt the trash washing out to sea. Nasty. All right, let's check in with Squire right now for a look ahead to sports. That was disturbing. Yeah. Uh, okay, well... I'm not totally surprised that Quinn Hughes didn't win the Rookie of the Year award. I kind of thought maybe people were leaning to Kale McCarr, but just the same, relatively close vote. So Kale gets it, Quinn finishes second. We'll also talk about why the Whitecaps traded Jordi Reyna on Saturday. All right, look forward to that. Thank you, Squire. Also tonight, just in time, a deal that keeps TikTok online. All right, uh, Squire is here now with look ahead to sports. <laughs> I have nothing else to stall, buddy. I hope you're ready. Oh, yeah, why? Is there <laughs> trouble? No. I can handle it. Don't worry. I got this one. Okay. I have things to talk about. I knew it. Uh, Quinn Hughes won the hearts of Canucks fans. He won the respect of opposing players, but he didn't win the Calder Trophy as the NHL's Rookie of the Year. He finished second in the voting to Colorado defenseman Kale McCarr. Hughes was the main reason the Canucks' power play was so good this year, but perhaps being a minus 10 sent voters to Kale McCarr. He did have three more points in the regular season than McCarr, but McCarr played less games because of an injury. McCarr was also a plus 12. Mind you, he did play on a better team than Quinn Hughes did. 
A lot of the award winners didn't do so well in bubble hockey, but Leon Dreisaitl was the MVP voted on by the media and the players. Roman Yossi was the top defenseman, and a Connor did win an award. Connor Hellebuck, the goaltender from the Jets, was the Vesna winner. Uh, well, if the Stars win the Stanley Cup, maybe that man will win the Conn Smythe Trophy, Anton Huboden. But in the first period tonight, the Lightning find the back of the net numerous times. Braden Point on the power play, then Andre Palat also on the power play. That one's easy. And then Kevin Shattenkirk. The puck has eyes. Just finds its way through bodies both blue and green. And that made it 3-0, last check, 3-1 in the second period. And the series, of course, is 1-0 for Dallas. On Saturday morning, the Vancouver Whitecaps traded Jordy Reyna to DC United for $400,000 in allocation money. It's not a move that was expected, although there were times over his tenure with the Whitecaps where you thought, well, maybe Jordy has run afoul of management and would be moved, or maybe he'd want to move on. But apparently he wasn't asking to leave, at least at this moment. Oh, he never asked to, to be moved. He never asked to be moved. He, he had an opportunity in the beginning of the year uh, to go to another club and it didn't work out. Uh, but then as soon as he stayed, his mind was here. Uh, we felt with Jordi, it's a player with value. It's a player that has talent and it's a good kid. But we felt that the opportunity that uh, DC was giving us, also thinking about the pieces that we need moving forward, was a good opportunity for us. And Jordi has been in the, was in the club for about four years. So it was good for everybody. It's a new it's a new chapter for Jordi. It's a good move for us in the cap. So everybody's happy. When you do a move where everybody's happy, it's good for everyone. Well, the NFL is now in Vegas officially at Allegiant Stadium. Raiders no longer in Oakland. They're now LV, and they're taking on the New Orleans Saints. First touchdown in this stadium, Alvin Kamara of the Saints. That made it 10-0 in the first quarter. But... Alec Ingold gets the first one as a Las Vegas Raider. 17-14, last check, New Orleans in the second quarter. Dennis Shapovalov is moving on up, not to the east side, just moving on up in the tennis rankings. He is now 10th in the world. Him and Milos Ronic, the only two Canadian men to reach the ATP top 10. Right now, Ronic is 19th. Uh, it's been a good run for Shapovalov of late. Semis in the Italian Open, quarters at the U.S. Open. Premier League soccer today. Man City and uh, Wolverhampton. Kevin De Bruyne scored a goal in the penalty and then had a hand in the other two goals by City. Slips it into Raheem Sterling, cuts the ball back. Phil Foden, 33rd minute, 2-0 for Man City. But... Uh, Daniel Pagensi with moves and gets it over to uh, Raul Jimenez. 2-1. But in the uh, fifth minute of injury time, City puts a little insurance on this. The Bruin wins the loose ball. Gabriel Jesus, 3-1, the final. There you go. Sometimes there's nothing you can do.
both those calls. Okay, thank you very much, Squire. Here's Jay Durant with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jay? Thank you, Chris. We'll have more tonight on the election call. Plus, two people have paid hefty prices for hosting big parties at the same Burnaby vacation rental over the weekend. 23 people were crammed into a penthouse suite on Saturday. Officers shut down a different party in the same unit less than 24 hours later. We'll let you know how much the hosts were fined. Well, those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11, Chris. All right, thanks very much, Jay. And when we come back, Oracle and Walmart team up to get a piece of TikTok. What it means for users next. The wildly popular TikTok app has had a rocky relationship with the U.S. government, but it's still up and running today. It was supposed to be banned at midnight, but the Beijing company averted a last-minute shutdown with a new deal that brings in some American partners. With a massive global audience, TikTok is a staple of pop culture. A place where users create and discover viral videos. In this country alone, more than 100 million TikTokers, many teenagers or even younger. A critical audience that's paying close attention. We are here for you and we are here for the long run. TikTok's partnership with Oracle and Walmart receiving tentative approval from President Trump, allowing the Beijing-based app to avoid a U.S. shutdown for now. I have given the deal my blessing. The high-profile shift would likely place TikTok's headquarters in Texas. TikTok, owned by the Chinese tech company ByteDance, says it hopes the move will maintain and expand its global headquarters in the U.S. while bringing 25,000 jobs. In the deal, ByteDance would maintain majority ownership in the new TikTok Global, with Oracle and Walmart holding a 20% share. Walmart would also introduce e-commerce to the app, allowing users to shop Walmart online through TikTok. It'll look the same when you turn it on or your kids turn it on tomorrow. The question is, will it get worse? And does this group of people make it better? With Oracle taking over its American operations to safeguard users' data, Oracle, whose chairman held a fundraiser earlier this year for President Trump, announcing it will operate TikTok systems in the Oracle cloud, a major step following concern about user data being shared with the Chinese government. It will have nothing to do with China. It'll be totally secure. But some experts are still concerned. It's not clear how American uh, information is protected. It's not clear how they couldn't just do this by going public and becoming an American company. A lot of questions still about that deal. And more ways that they can sell us stuff mm. if we use an app like that. All right, uh, last word on weather maybe before we go here. Christy? Thanks, Chris. So a few showers overnight and likely early tomorrow morning. Tomorrow's not going to be a bad day. We'll see some breaks of blue sky, but overall a fair amount of cloud. It's tomorrow night and in particular Wednesday morning that the fall pattern begins. Get ready to get soaked, everyone. Make sure the kids have gumboots and rain jackets ready. Good idea. We know you've got your umbrella out there in the yard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe yeah. I'll have to bust out the turtlenecks pretty soon. No, don't, don't do that. No. <laughs> <laughs> I know you guys oh, both have no. warned me in the past. Yeah, you don't, uh, you don't need that. All right. Thanks very much for watching, everybody. So long summer. Welcome fall. Not a good and look for you, man. No, no, I know it. Okay. See you guys. <laughs>